Alrighty. ¿Qué pasa? How's it going? Um, where is... All right. Are we ready? I don't know what this is. Um, okay, can I pray for us and then we'll get started? Uh, the format is... Uh, I'm going to answer whatever questions I can uh, that you guys have and point you to God's Word. Um because I don't really plan on giving you too many opinions. Where it does cross into the line of opinion and where it's not scripturally clear, I'll try to make that obvious, okay, and tell you explicitly so that you don't have to wonder. Um, can I pray? All right, thanks for being here. God, we're so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. God, we're thankful for the word of God that is living and active. God, we are so grateful for the spirit of God that lives within every single Christian, every single person that is a child of God, has the Spirit of God living within them, enabling and empowering them to understand your word and apply your word through your power. Lord, we're praying that this time would be profitable, and Lord, it would be helpful. Would you fill us all with your Spirit? And we pray this your name. Amen. Okay, um, maybe some... Uh, well, we can, uh, I guess no ground rules. You guys can ask me anything, but like maybe things like as far as like, I'll try to tell you like what's maybe not as helpful maybe for everyone. I would consider the questions that maybe are specific areas of interest rather than like, uh, just like I have like this weird fascination with T-Rexes. Is there any proof in Genesis that T-Rexes exist? Things like that. Uh, does that make sense? Okay. All right, let's go. What do you got? Yeah. Yeah, so can you give me an example of what like what science would contradict the Bible? So first of all, like you could say from like uh so there's actually like really good places where you'd be able to navigate these conversations. When you say contradict the Bible, it'd always be conscientious of what you even mean by that. So as far as like the biblical method for how God created the world, he created it in six days. And there's different interpretations on that. I am a six day literal creation advocate. I don't buy into the gap theory. I'm not an old earther because I read the plain reading of the Bible and you'd have to go to a different school or you'd have to have someone convince you that it meant something else for you to come to a different conclusion. And so I understand the Hebrew, but when anybody ever gets up there and says, uh, the Hebrew narrative, the poetry, the literature style, it can mean a million different things. I'll tell you a little bit about Genesis and I'll, I'll tie it into your uh, question. Every single time in the Bible, the, in the Old Testament, the word yom is used in the Hebrew, which means day, and it's conjoined by there was morning and there was evening, and that was the first or second day. Every single time in the Old Testament, it refers to a 24-hour period. So yom means day, but day can also mean a period of time, an age of time, a thousand years, it says in the psalm. A day is like a thousand years, but every single time it says there was morning and then there was evening, like it does in the Genesis account, it refers to a 24-hour period. Uh, I'm a six-day little creationist. So in regards to uh, how we interact with evolution, well, first of all, Charles Darwin didn't even believe in evolution. He's the father of evolution. Like on his deathbed, he doesn't even buy it. So I always would understand that. And there's really good sources, and I could point to there because I could talk about this subject alone for over an hour. There's a lot of good material on AnswersInGenesis.org. They have a lot of good stuff in regards to carbon-14 dating and how you can navigate those conversations. 
Also, wherever scripture seems to be on a different page than science, I always align myself with scripture. So obviously, up until 500 years ago, everyone thought the world was flat, right? But it says in the Psalms that the universe, it, it says in Psalm 103 that the orbit, it's, the scripture is always talking about things. In Psalm 103, even how the earth is orbiting the sun, there are things where scripturally it's been ahead of science for thousands of years. I understand they thought Christopher Columbus was going to go off the face of the earth because the earth was flat. And scripture testifies that the earth is a ball. So I know some of you guys maybe are Kyrie Irving fans, but the world is not flat, and it's not a conspiracy theory. So as far as when science contradicts the scripture, let God be found true and every single man a liar. Uh, you can learn, though, to navigate those conversations intelligently, and I would recommend resources like Answers in Genesis, but also just to commit to scripture and understanding how that navigates. I mean, here, here's, uh, I was talking to Chris Ireland about this yesterday, or no, who was I talking to? Sean McDowell. He's going to do a seminar in the morning. I have a hard time even with like uh, the dismissal of the opening pages of the Bible as like not important for you to understand. Um, how can you possibly believe that God raises the dead and transform hearts? We're going to look at Jesus' miracles if you can't buy the opening three pages of the Bible. So I understand that there's a lot of Christian evolutionists per se, but I just think that once you start discrediting the opening pages of the Bible— you're going to start discrediting the Bible stance on sexuality. There's a lot of ripple effect. And I'm not saying every gap theorist or old earther has compromised. I'm saying that it is a slippery slope, though, when you start going, I'm going to try to harmonize this as much with science as I can so that we don't lose credibility with the scientific community. I think that approach is dumb. Uh, and obviously, this is a Q&A, and I'm giving you my opinion. So, uh, but Answers in Genesis, great resource. You can type in any question you have, and they have a bunch of articles and videos on that subject. Uh, you, you go and then have a go. You, know. you go, yeah. What was your name? Sorry, the first question. Oh, Claire. Claire, great question. Thanks for asking. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Same. Yeah, the, uh, she, she, I'll repeat the question. I uh, said that it's so important to spread the gospel, but she says it's difficult in real life. So how can we do that in an intelligent, strategic way, right? What was your name? Michaela. Uh, you know, I think that's super important. Well, first of all, if you have a message that brings life to dying people, you're going to find a way. So first of all, the answer to that question always begins with a deeper understanding of the gospel. If people are going to die, and if we believe the things we say we believe, and every single person that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is on their way to an eternity in hell, I don't need to supply you with a strategy on if your neighbor's in a burning house that you need to go get them out. So part of it fundamentally is we have to understand if what the Bible says is true, uh, we're gonna feel compelled. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says the love of Christ compels me because there's this reality that I'm facing. Now, strategically, one of the ways that Paul does it in Acts that I think is always a good model, before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, Acts 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, he's always going to start sharing the gospel by what God has done in his own life. Your testimony is not the gospel, but it's a great segue or bridge to sharing it. When things are happening in your life that you're excited about, people want to share it. Like, hey, if you just won the lottery, you'd go, dude, are you serious? I'm going to buy a new Razor scooter. I don't know what you guys buy. But uh, you're going to be pumped on it because it's, it's transformative. It's life-changing. You share what you're pumped on. And so Paul is always going to say, hey, let me just first of all tell you what God has done in my life. I used to be this. I used to be this. 
but God's done a miracle in my life, and I cannot stop speaking about the things I've seen and heard. Even with the disciples, they, they bring them in jail, they beat them, and they just say, we have to keep proclaiming what God has done in our hearts. As long as the gospel is a theory or a subject, and it's impersonal, it'll always feel like you lack the motivation to share it. But when the gospel becomes related to the person of Jesus Christ, who you intimately love and you feel intimately loved by, it'll always be difficult for you to keep that to yourself because Buddy the Elf says, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I what? I don't care who knows it. And if you're in love with the person of Jesus Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ, you're gonna find the way. So fundamentally, a deeper understanding of the gospel, but then I think starting with your, your testimony, and every single time I'm in an Uber, uh, which is, I don't know, frequently, I just say, hey, do you have any background with religion? Tell me about your family. I say, tell me about your family and tell me about what you believe. Every single person you interact with has thoughts about God. Every single atheist has thoughts about God because they've arrived at a certain conclusion about God and they've, they've wrestled with it and they're ready to talk about it. And even the people that are initially hostile, they, they I, I go, oh yeah, it sounds, like, yeah, it sounds like maybe you've had some tough experience. Well, yeah, I have and here's why. So that's what I do. Um, and I've shared those stories here at camp before. Tell me about your faith. And they'll tell you. Thanks, Michaela. Have a go. No. Uh, you, can, you can share specific people. I always want to make a clear line between, uh, she said, should you warn about false teachers or would that be considered gossip? Uh, false teachers, just if you're new. Anybody want to give me a definition of a false teacher? Youth pastors? Anybody? Daniel? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. So she's asking, should we call those people out by name? Or sometimes people even ask me, why don't we just keep on teaching the truth? And as we teach the truth, you know, the best way to understand the counterfeit is by just telling them what the real thing looks like. And I understand that. And if you've seen Catch Me If You Can, that's what they say. But uh, here's what the Bible does. The Bible calls out false teachers by name. And in Jude, it says, contend earnestly for the truth. And then they specifically call out people that preach another gospel. Where the line needs to be drawn is that everyone that's on a different page theologically isn't necessarily a false teacher. So where a false teacher needs to be delineated, uh, distinguished is if they're preaching another gospel. So I always want to make that distinction. Like there's a lot of people that I'd go, false teacher. Uh, and I have no problem telling you who those things are. Like I think Joel Osteen is a false teacher because he preaches an easy gospel. You don't ha he doesn't make hard lines on the gospel. Hey, what about a Muslim? Who am I to say if Muslims won't be in heaven? Well, I know absolutely that if you believe what Muslims believe, you're not going to be in heaven because they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And anybody who doesn't believe exactly that is a false teacher and a false religion. And the easiest way to know if something's a false religion is if it doesn't agree with what the Bible says. So that would be an example where I'd go, hey, I have no problem telling you that. If one of you guys say he's your spiritual hero, I'd go, you need a new one. Um, so that would be one thing. But if it's some guy in like a denominational difference and I'm on different pages than him, I'm always super careful on how I do that. I think sometimes people build platforms off of like just attacking false teachers. Um, and I, I definitely have a lot of opinions about what people should say uh, and when they're wrong. But I, uh, I think that it needs to be done in wisdom. And that's the goal of the local church too. So like the local church, and this is why I like when people... The goal of the local church, and this is why you need to be in a solid church. I know some of you guys come up with churches that you don't under, you know, you're not necessarily attending throughout the year. You need to be in a solid church. And when you guys go to a, a university or wherever it is, 
your campus community is not the local church. Being part of like Campus Crusade is not a church. There might be really solid Campus Crusades. Like I think I've heard of them. But that's not the local church. And unless you're a part of a community that knows air is out there and we need to preach and contend for the truth, you're going to be eaten up by air because the way that Satan works is twofold. Number one, in false religion. And number two, in making true religion look limited and narrow-minded and restrictive. He disguises himself as a what? Anybody know? An angel of light. Satan works in deviating little things about the gospel and getting people to come to his church. He's not running all these like systems of error. He's not just in the like Satan club. The way Satan operates is by false in false teaching much of the time. So, um, great question. But uh, yeah, I think part of that is navigating that with your your church and pastor, and obviously, yeah. Anything else? What else? Yo, Hawaii. Yeah. You know, I think that idea of Jesus, you know, I was I was reading this thing by um uh yeah, I was reading this thing the other day that like Jesus always was interacting with people, even even and I, and I know this is a, this brings up a further conversation. Um just even about sexuality. Um it's Pride Month and you guys see saw that and and we can talk about more about this tomorrow and I always want to approach this conversation with a lot of love and grace knowing that assuredly in a room of 100 people there's people that are navigating a, a very difficult conversation and maybe you saw that p photo of maybe jesus um washing the guy's feet with the the pride flagger and and kind of navigating that and this is exactly who jesus would be with is hanging out with the people on pride month and we're going to talk about this tomorrow but jesus did hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors which were the equivalent of the worst of the worst there's no no moral equivalent to a tax collector um, so we think about prostitutes um, really bad. Tax collectors were people that had purchased the right from Rome to bully, beat, and kill and rape their own people. So a tax collector wasn't a guy that was just asking for an extra dollar because you owed it to the government. It was a Jewish man who turned on his Jewish family and said, unless you give me this money, I'm going to bring in the Roman guard. And the Roman guard were people that we're crucifying people, beating people, raping villages. So there's no moral equivalent. Those are the worst of the worst. And so, and then you're, you're referencing Psalm 26, which says, I don't want anything to do with those people. And he's going to say the same thing on Psalm 145. Do I not hate those who hate you, O God, and abhor those who rise up against you? I hate them. I count them my enemies. Uh, here's what you need to understand. Jesus never, ever let any people living in sin feel comfortable. So he did befriend them because he gave them the gospel. And he says, I did not come to heal the healthy, but the what? The sick. Yeah, that's why he came. He's the, he's the great physician. But even tomorrow, we're going to look at this briefly when we talk about sin. The woman caught in adultery, it says that she was caught in the act. Do you know what that means? It means she was literally ripped out of a bed. She was having sex in with a man that was not her husband, thrown presumably with a sheet around her in the dirt in front of Jesus. Caught in the act. I mean, this was a scandal. And he doesn't just say, where are your accusers? Okay, you're good. He says, Neither do I condemn you. And then what does he say? 
go and what? Sin no more. Jesus is preaching a message of grace to people that are in sin. And because he's a good doctor, he gives different remedies for different diseases. He's going to preach a different way to the self-righteous Pharisees than he does to the people that are sexually immoral. But he's never condoning sin. He's never allowing sin. And no sexually immoral person ever hung out with Jesus without feeling ultimately either like they needed to disregard him, reject him, or kill him. Because at the end of Jesus, at the end of the day, Jesus was not killed for being an accommodating guy. He says in John 5, he was killed because he testified that their deeds were evil. That's why it says he was killed. He claimed to be God. It was the claims that he made. But he also said that he came to testify about the light. And in John 3, it says, they refused to come about, they refused to come to the light because they're so afraid that their darkness will be exposed. So... I think it's a great question. I have gay friends. I have sexually immoral friends, but they know where I stand and they don't feel comfortable around me because I keep on saying the same thing. Um, but that doesn't mean I, 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 you know, it's when people say, does the Bible, does God hate gay people uh, or, or something like that? And this, I could talk about this for the next two hours. So I don't want to open up a can of worms, but I do think it's a, applicable to your question. Uh, no, not necessarily. God hates sin, and it says in Psalm 7, Psalm 11, that God hates the wicked. It's not the sin that's, pub, that's punished forever in hell. It's sinners that are punished forever in hell. So sometimes we just throw out like Christian sayings, like God hates the sin, not the sinner. Not true. But God also extends love and grace to people, and the way that people know they need to receive that love and grace is when they're confronted with the hard, cold facts about their sin. And this is what Jesus does with the worst of the worst including self-righteous pastor's kids who grow up thinking they don't know God. So um, I think we need to have a, a full-spectrum approach of Jesus' teaching and ministry. No one liked him because his words were hard for them. People that thought they knew every answer and the people that thought they were so lost and degenerate, like the prodigal, that all they could do was go big, and they're both adopted at the end of the day. Uh, what else? Yeah. Yeah, you know, she just was saying, if you didn't hear, like, how, what if someone says they're a Christian and then there's no evident, maybe, fruit in their life and no evident love for God's people? Well, it's a great question. Give me your name. Vanessa. First John's going to say that one of the, the greatest evidences that you've been saved by God is if you have a genuine love for the people of God. And you don't have a genuine love for the people of God if you don't have a genuine love for the house of God. And so on a quest of hearing all these stories about deconstruction, I love Jesus but not his church, that's impossible because you, if you came up to me and said, I love you, dude, but I think your wife sucks, you don't love me because I care about my wife. I love my wife. She's my bride. And you can never convince Jesus biblically you love him and ignore his bride or hate his bride because at the end of the day, Jesus came to save his church. He's, he's building his church right now. He's coming back for his church. So one of the ways that we evidence genuine transformation in our life is by loving the brethren. First John, by this we know that you are of God if you love the brethren. He's saying, you want to know if you're a Christian? If you love other people. So that's one way. And one of the ways that that love is evidenced is by serving other people. And the family of God is the place 
where you serve other people and that gifts and service are, are demonstrated. Then there's this whole other category. I, I think church is one thing because there's a lot of like, what's the difference between me going to my Sunday or like Starbucks and meeting with a couple friends where a few or more are gathered? What's the difference between that and local church? Massive difference uh, because there's no multi-generational approach. Older men aren't training the younger men. There's no elder board. There's no pastor. There's a lot of differences. Now, if you're just talking about genuine like obedience, um, here's super clear teaching on the Bible. Uh, there are probably thousands of people over the last seven years that have been here that have given their life to the Lord um, that I've seen stand up. The people that have actually been saved, the Bible teaches, are those that continue to evidence a transformation that's been taking place in the heart by the way that they live. Luke 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You are not saved by your works, but... If you've truly been saved, the fruit of your life evidences a reality that's taken place within your heart. So you're saved by faith alone, but you're not saved by a faith that is alone. So people that say, and this is the teaching of Jesus, and sometimes I just, I don't really know how people get around this. I, I actually, I tweeted something the other day. I, 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 let me read it for you. I, I, it was today. This guy responded to me. It was like just the most basic thing I, I, I posted. I said, uh, I was studying Romans 6. I'm preaching on Romans 6 next week at a conference. Uh, and Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh, which means that we fight sin. If you're a Christian, you should care about being holy. I said, I've never met anyone who regretted taking extra precautions against sin. No provision for the flesh is ever worth what it takes away from God's children. And this is what this guy responded. Sounds like a bunch of religious hypocritical leaders in the gospel doing their best to follow the law and honor God. What am I missing? You focus way too much on sin. All that matters is if we love God. Well, here's what the Bible teaches. By this you know if you love me. If you what? Keep my commandments. So the Bible is so simple and I'm so, I'm so grateful for that because it's so simple a child can understand it, but it's I think sometimes it's never the bits with the Bible that are hard to understand that people reject. It's the bits that are the most simple to understand and fundamentally ignored because no one really wants to acknowledge, like, this is what it is. By this you know if you come to know me, if you o obey my commandments. First John is the book that answers that question in great detail. And he writes, the, he writes the goal, or the book with the goal that he would provide Christians with assurance. Now, with that being said, there is an element where if you look at your life too much to validate your faith, you're always going to lack assurance. How do I know if I'm saved? That's why you're not supposed to look in the mirror. You're supposed to look to Christ. And as you look to Christ, the, f the finisher of your faith, you're then transformed into his image. So as much as it says evaluate your life to see if you're in the faith, you should see, man, am I growing in Christ? Am I growing in my love for Christ? But if you're always looking in the mirror to determine whether or not you really know God, you've missed the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is fixing our eyes on Hebrews. Who? Jesus Christ. And as you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, you want to be more like the one who saved you. And I want to, I, I feel like that needs clarification. What else? Angel. How do we know if the Bible's true and what if we die and it's wrong? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, first of all, how we know the Bible is true. Uh, 
the, I was talking about this in the pool with Mikey and Harry, uh, guys that used to be on my staff, and now they're here working full-time as camp director, one in Meadow, one here in Pondy. Um, I think what I used to do, and just to give you a little bit of a, uh, I have resources on this I could, I could send you um, that I've done. After college, I went to Czech Republic for four months, and the national religion in Czech Republic is atheism. And I went from school to school for four months providing credibility for the scripture from a secular perspective, just from the credibility of the documents, uh, the different manuscripts that we have, that we have more uh, manuscripts written near the time of writing than any other book in human history, a thousand years before Homer's you know, Iliad or anything like that. There's the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Bible has the best uh, documentation for its manuscripts, and it's all integrated. It's written by 40 authors over a 1,500-year period, and it's all pointing towards one person, and it's fully integrated. And it's all written by eyewitnesses. There's periods of revelation, but everything in the New Testament is written by people who actually know Christ, secular sources such as Josephus. You can go into all those things and apologetic people like till their head explodes. Here's what I know to be true. For a Christian, it says in Romans that the Spirit of God testifies within you that this is the Word of God. And I think sometimes on a quest of apologetically defending the Scripture, we don't just go, hey, if you're a Christian, you can pray with the psalmist and say, God, help me to believe this and hope, open my eyes to understand it. So there's two different approaches, and I think both are helpful. One of the things that Paul does in Acts 17 is he uses apologetics, but he's ultimately going to drive them towards the word of God. What's funny is that, you know, I, I was witnessing with some Mormons last, uh, last month, and uh, the Book of Mormon was written 150 years ago before the Civil War. No one's asking for, like, any sort of evidence for that. But we have the oldest book that hasn't changed, and it's been passed down. And I repeated someone in my message last night that's 1,800 years before my time because we're still saying the same exact thing. So if you read Augustine's Confessions, that's 1,500 years before the Book of Mormon ever existed. And so there's things that, like, sometimes we, I don't think we understand. Like, um, we have the best source of history in the world in the Bible, and every single thing that comes out archaeologically or historically doesn't just discredit, doesn't discredit the scripture, goes to prove its veracity. And I like the word veracity. It means absolute truthfulness. And you ask the second question. So uh, what happens if we die and, and we're wrong? Well, first of all, we're not wrong. I'm absolutely right on this because God's right, and I agree with God. And so, I, so I'm not wavering in, in if I, whether or not I believe it. Do I have doubt at time? I've had seasons of doubt in my life, for sure. But as, the more I, more I devote my life to Scripture, the more I go, this is an integrated book, and it makes total sense. And as I evaluate the world, God, you live in a world that tells you the problem with mankind is outside of them. So what they knew, need to do is look inside of them. The Bible's been saying the same thing for thousands of years. No, the problem is inside your heart, and the solution must be outside of you. That, is, that makes way more sense than any other worldview. And as far as even going back to your question, Claire, on evolution, man, as far as logically and rationally, first of all, you live in a world that denies ration, rational thinking and logical thinking. But to really go, oh, nothing times nothing created this, and now we create Teslas and rocket ships because we are basically evolved from monkeys over time, that sounds, that has no credibility to me in a way that an intelligent designer does. Personality takes you back to a designer that is personal. Relationships take you back to a God that is relatable. Intelligence takes you back to an intelligent designer. So as far as how, what if we're wrong, 
We're not wrong. God's not wrong. And uh, what if you reject God and you're wrong? What's the consequence for me if, yeah, I mean, you have to think that from an apologetical perspective. What's the consequence for me if I'm wrong? Nothing. I get reincarnated. Uh, I die and I'm done. What's the consequence for you if you're wrong? An eternity in hell. So, I like my odds. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I think too, like sometimes people. Yeah, I I think um. I I think because we live in a world where it's like, what's the difference between my religion and your religion? And so you know, we all have different you know, pieces of the pie that we bring. Um, truth by very definition is exclusive. Two things that contradict each other cannot both be true. And so I'm a firm believer in the truth of the Bible as the revelation of God. Um, and I, I don't doubt that it's right because I, I also no other religion offers any sort of assurance. You can read the Quran. I've read it multiple times. I've studied it, um, taken classes on it. I mean, Muhammad is the greatest prophet. On his deathbed, he prays, pray for me that Allah will accept me following a religious leader and prophet who had absolutely no assurance that he would be welcomed into heaven because two billion people and a growing population because they have eight kids per family uh, are in a religion where there's no assurance of salvation you talk to a mormon no assurance of salvation hopefully the good outweighs the bad my assurance is not based upon anything i've done but because of what jesus has done for me and that's a faith i'll rest on and where it doesn't make absolute sense we're going to talk about this this evening I say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I fall at the feet of Jesus. And I say, Lord, I, I'm weak, and, and I need you to help me. And I'm so thankful that God doesn't demand perfect faith. He accepts weak, imperfect faith because he's a perfect Savior. What else? Sure. Just disregard, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's elements of that. And if, what was your name, bro? Ethan. Ethan's basically asking, he's at a Christian school, and if people aren't living lives that aligns with the testimony they have as a follower of Jesus Christ, where's the line where you continue to plead with them or maybe just go, I'm going to have to step away, I've done what I can. Fair? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, you might think the same things with unsaved family or friends. I've talked to a number of students in the past that have gotten saved at camp two years before and still have parents that reject the Lord and think you're a fool for believing in a God. Uh, and they've just shared Christ over and over again. Here's what I, I know to be true in Scripture. Uh, first of all, the most powerful weapon we have as a child of God is prayer. So I think one of the things that always has to be fundamental and first and not as a last resort is prayer. And I think sometimes prayer is viewed as a last resort. Like, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? I've tried everything. Have you prayed? I guess I could try that. You know, like uh, the way that God works it says you have not because you what in James? Ask not. Did you hear that? Do you understand that? You have not because you, say it with me, ask not. The greatest problem in your life is not unanswered prayers. The greatest problem in your life is unoffered prayers to God. And that prayer, sometimes you say, God, open up an opportunity or whatever it might mean. Um. There are opportunities there. And then I would say, Lord, help me to pray like the apostles pray. What did they pray for? God, would you fill me, Acts 4, with all boldness, with all scripture, and with your spirit. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are God's ambassadors. And we've been given one responsibility. And it is to beg, beseech, and implore. Three of the most intense verbs in the New Testament in Greek. It literally means to grab them by the shoulders and beg them to be reconciled with God. There is no passivity in regards to how we approach an unbeliever. So there is a real component, Ethan, where you go, you've got to believe this, my heart broken for you. And I think that's always done best in love because I think sometimes people get on kind of like a, a little bit of a high horse and go like, they're not living how they should be living. You're, you can't, you know, like, you're contradicting, you know, this. And I think relationships are always going to be helpful in that. So here's what I would say, and just in brief, and this is going to be a nuanced thing because you have to exercise discernment, right? And, and I think, that, let's say it was with your mom. You would go, Mom, I want to lay this out. Mom, because I love you, I've got to tell you this again. Well, Mom, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to bother you about it for a while, but I'm going to pray for you every single day. And I'm going to come back, and I want you to know every single day I'm praying that God would open your eyes to see your great need for him and that you need a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And then I would say, I've been checking back in. Mom, I want to let you know, as I've said, I've been praying for you. You need a savior. And can I tell you the gospel once more? So I think that's applicable. Uh, with your friends, I think you can do the same thing. Uh, whoever it is. I don't think you just have to keep on beating them down. I think you love them, engage them, have them over for dinner, still hang out. I don't think you disregard them if they, um, if they say no, like if it's your friend. Like, but I do think at a certain point, bad company corrupts good morals. And so when your friends that are unsaved stop becoming a mission field, they become bad company. So how, like, should I keep on hanging out with my unsaved friends? As long as they're a mission field. Um, and you're, go, yeah, Claire. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so 
one of the things that's like super obvious, and, and you guys are in an environment that is kind of uh, insane in a Christian sense. Yeah, God deeply, deeply cares about babies in the womb because a baby in the womb is a human being. You know, I don't know how you escape that. I went in and I saw baby Lily on an ultrasound. Anybody that sees that, I mean, you watch this thing squirming around at like 12 weeks, and you're like, are you serious? That's hands, feet, just pumping like this in there, and you're like, are you kidding me? That's a baby. And that's Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God makes babies, and he uses human instruments, but God is weaving together babies in their mommy's womb, and he deeply cares and loves about them. Uh, God forgives people that have had abortions. Every single week I interact with girls that have had an abortion. And I'm so thankful that God forgives uh, things like such as that. So I think that's worth saying because it's a, an important question. Um, as far as engaging that from a Christian perspective and not a political perspective, uh, your Christian uh, worldview does affect your political worldview. So when anybody tries to separate those things, I don't really understand th that because um, that's going to shape your your. your the way you see life is dictated through the scripture. Um, as far as not approaching that politically, one of the things you have to understand, I was teaching on this last Thursday somewhere in Titus 3. He says that, remember that you once were foolish, ignorant, darkened in your understanding, aliens and strangers from God. One of the ways that you, one of the things that you need to understand is sometimes when you look at the world and you turn on the news and you go, what is everyone thinking? They've lost their, their minds, right? The Bible is going to see something in the First Testament over and over again, in 1 Corinthians and Titus and Ephesians, that the unbeliever is darkened in their understanding so they don't see the world the way they should see the world. So when you go and you go, man, look at it. Well, biblically speaking, in Deuteronomy, sin does make you stupid. When you suppress the truth and unrighteousness for so long, you stop seeing reality the way it really is. So when you're trying to explain something rationally or ro logically to someone, and I said, like, hey, it's not rational or logical, like, for me to say nothing created nothing, um, that's not really always a great argument for people. And that's why I stopped doing so much apologetics because ultimately what I know is that the spirit of God uses the word of God and that's power. Human strategy and apologetical approaches can be helpful and I've used them. But at the end of the day, one of the things they have to know is what God's word says. And God's word is used by the spirit of God to help people understand. But you need to, un you need to remember, let me read it for you. In Titus 3, and he's writing to people that are in a, in a insane uh, spiritual climate. He's saying in verse 2, uh, Titus 3, 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men. And then he says this, in order for you to not grow bitter against the world that is becoming increasingly hostile towards the people of God, do you know what you have to do? It says you need to remember something. For we also once were foolish ourselves, Foolish means ignorant. You don't get it. The lights aren't on. You're lost. Foolish, disobedient, deceived. You know what deceived means? It goes back to your question, Abigail. It means easy prey for false teachers. It means vulnerable. If you're an easily deceived person, it means you're vulnerable. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful. Why are we hateful? We just don't like other people. Uh, and then because of that, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the basis of deeds we've done. So you'd have to remember that the gospel is what opens people's minds to see what you're saying. 
And so you can rationally persuade them. And sometimes because God's law, Romans 2, is written upon our hearts, which is why every atheist, I go, has to understand that you can only, C.S. Lewis says, you can only know, call a stick crooked if you have an idea of a straight one, right? If there's no, there's no concept of straight, you have no concept of crooked, right? But And you can use those techniques for a while, but ultimately you have to pray for them and you have to point them to Scripture and uh, you approach it from a Christian perspective saying, I believe the Bible is the Word of God and this is what it clearly demonstrates and that's human. I mean, what's crazy is that you watch all these commercials at the Super Bowl about adopting stray dogs. We, have a, we live in a culture that loves dogs more than babies, legitimately. I want you to imagine going into a golden retriever's womb and punching little babies to death. Culturally, that would make people more angry than what we do on a daily basis to millions of humans. And that is how you know we live in a society that has rejected God. And ultimately, Romans 1 says, will be rejected by God and is facing the punishment of God. Am I wrong on the golden retrievers? No. I don't think I am because they literally show those commercials all the time. Uh, Emma, Emmy. Yeah. No. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. What Jesus is referring to in John 3 is a prophecy from Ezekiel 36 that relates to two principles. We need to be baptized with water and the blood because we need to have our sins cleansed, but we also need to be regenerated. And so there's a twofold work in salvation, and that's what he's referring to. What baptism does, it is a public testimony of an internal reality. It's an external demonstration of an internal transformation. So it's not necessary for salvation, but in Acts 2 it says, repent, believe, what should we do now? Be baptized, because it is going to demonstrate that. But no, you don't need to be baptized. I know that there's certain uh, denominations, even within the Roman Catholic uh, tradition, that would say that that's an essential component of salvation, and that has nothing to do with scripture. So, yeah. How do you heal after you've been hurt by the church? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the things that's, um, hey, real quick, I'm answering all these questions super brief, and I forgot to say this at the beginning because I'm not in a rhythm. Um, because on a quest of brevity, sometimes I don't include the necessary tone and love that, that I would have. Does that make sense? Like if I was going to do a message on each of these questions, I would say, I see this, I see this, I see this, and here's the reason why. But sometimes on a quest of boom, 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 I, I never want to get rolling so fast that I forget that I'm dealing with real people, real questions, real hurt, real struggles, real doubts. Does that make sense? And so I love you guys. I care about you guys. These are all really good questions. And each of these questions legitimately I could preach on, have preached on, and, and what, what it's difficult to smash into a two-minute answer. So in regards to what if I've been healed by the church, you know what's funny sometimes is you look at all these hip churches on, you know, with their reels and their spinning signs, and it says the perfect place for the imperfect people, for imperfect people. And then when people f get to church and they find out that there's imperfect people there, they leave the church, <laughs> um, which is hilarious because the church is comprised of sinners. And so if someone said that they haven't been hurt by the church, I would be surprised. I've been hurt by the church. Just to give you an example, my dad was a pastor. Um, went through a really rough situation made me super bitter against people in the church. My dad's one of, my dad has seven kids. I'm one of seven. Just a rough deal. I'm just like, man, made me really angry at some of the people I thought were the godliest men on earth. Um, and 
perceptibly were seen that way, and in many ways still are. And I was just really struggling with certain things. One of the things that you have to understand biblically is that's the church is always going to have difficulty and conflict, and how you heal uh, is by first of all just confessing that to the Lord and going, Lord, I I've been hurt, and uh, thankfully Psalm thirty two, Psalm thirty nine, forty seven, fifty four, He heals the broken what hearted. Uh, so I, I'm thankful for that. And uh, anytime you've been hurt by anything or anyone, you can take that to God and go, Lord, I've been wounded, and I'm thankful that you are the great physician, and you c- you alone can suture a deep wound. And, and so I would go that. And then I would also say, like, if you're still at that church, there's maybe conversations you need to navigate, figure out why you've been hurt. And that's a longer story. It would be more specific answer if I understood the specific hurt. Um, but I, th- I think that never let a hurt from a church be the catalyst for rejecting the church moving forward. Um, I think Satan uses wounds from church to get people to go, if this is what happens, then I want nothing to do with the church. I'll be this and this. And But Hebrews 3 is going to say, if you reject the people of God, sin is going to harden your heart. So don't forsake the assembling together. Yo. Yeah. Yeah, she's asking if I believe in the eternal submission of the Son. There's different ways that you could, that even what that question means, you just ask. So do you, want, do you have a greater degree of specificity on exactly what you're asking? Yeah, basically, one of the things that... Um, He's asking, like, there's theological battles, whether or not Jesus, even though he's equal with God, perpetually submits to the authority of the Father. Uh, the way I take it is, is Philippians 2, God, Jesus humbled himself, which means that if you humbled yourself to go do something, before you did that, you were esteemed and high and elevated. Isaiah 6 says that when Isaiah meets the king, he's what? Lofty and what? Exalted. He's above all other things. And the seraphim are worshiping him, their anatomy, their burning ones, they're claiming holy, holy, holy. And it says in John 12 that whom Isaiah saw is Jesus Christ, who's about to walk down the street on a donkey. It doesn't sound like this one was subordinate at all before he came. And if, in Philippians 2, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So I, I don't take it to be that there's this perpetual submission. I, I understand it to be that there is a humility that Christ uh, endured while he came to the earth in order that he might save sinners. One more question. Uh, I'll go to you, Orange Hat. Sorry, I'm, I say it one more time. Yeah, I can explain it as long as they have dinner catered here. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, so. Uh, I, yeah, there's something that uh, fundamentally I, I can try to explain it briefly. And this is, in a sense, where you can read a lot of good books on the Trinity. Uh, I did an episode uh, that you can look at that's going to be a longer answer to this on the Trinity that you can look at on YouTube. And it's, I have a conversation with Eric Tonis. He's speaking here next week. But 
he talks about this, the Trinity. What I would say is uh, there are three in one. God is one one person with three distinct, or one God with three distinct persons, and they all have different functions, but they're all equally God. And the way that they work is to promote and glorify the Son. The Father sends his Son to glorify the Son, and there's this reciprocal. Jesus says in John 17, I do this to glorify the Father, and then he promises that the Spirit is going to come. Here's what I would say as far as the roles, because right? sometimes we get them mixed up, and maybe this is the best way to, to view it. Uh, it doesn't say that God is the judge of the universe, and then he reluctantly agreed that Jesus would come as the Savior. What does it say in John 3, 16? That he sent his son, right? So, so you have to understand something, that there's God who's in one angling towards the redemption of his people. And sometimes that's why I hate the idea that God's a God in the Old Testament, he's a different God in the New Testament. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the way that he works is that he sends the Son, and then the, the Son, we're going to talk about this on Friday night, is going to send his Spirit. And the way that the Spirit works is to promote the Son, Jesus Christ. And the way that the Son works is to give glory back to the Father. And, and one of the things that maybe you just need to understand is there's been a lot of unhelpful metaphors like the yolk inside of an egg and then there's the casing on the egg and that's the trinity and the, the you know, like it's just the case. What am I looking for? Shell, there you go. It's like the case around the egg. Um, uh, it's Tesla's new egg. Uh, the, um, so I, I would just say there's, I could talk more about it. There's a couple of helpful resources I could point you to. And uh, I have a document on my phone, or I could get, I could download back at my room and drop you. That would be helpful, and I it will explain it to you in in my own words. That's like three or four pages. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Go ahead. One more. I, I guess. No. Uh, she. I have a podcast. I haven't written any books. I, I've been working on one for a while on the subject of the character of God as it relates to anxiety. Uh, I've told you that in in recent years. Um, so when I left here, that was the. The goal, still working through that. And then in my, on my podcast, what I'm doing is taking those series and I'm turning those into workbooks and curriculum. So I'm in the process of doing that. Uh, and that'll probably be coming out in the next, uh, realistically in the next 18 months. So what I did with John, so I'm teaching through it and I'll say this this evening. And I, it's always weird because I never want to be like, hey, I've done this. Uh, but I, I started doing it because I wanted to provide a resource because there wasn't a lot. Like if I was going to say, hey, you should know the book of John better, there was nothing for me to point anyone to other than like, go listen to a sermon, uh, 200 sermons by a guy you don't know. Um, and so what I did with even the Gospel of John is taught through it over 54 episodes. And so you can listen to those. I started doing that during COVID and then just taught through the book of Ecclesiastes doing Jonah right now. And all of those will ultimately end up in different workbooks and curriculum. The main book book I'm working on is a, is a book about how a, a deepened understanding of the character of God provides us with trust in God so that we can uh, not live anxious lives. Because if you've read Philippians 4, 6, it says be anxious for nothing. But, and then it says in First Peter that we cast our cares upon him so we don't have to be anxious. But the level of value that casting your cares upon God will have in your life is always going to be in direct correlation to the level of intimacy and depth you have with his entire character. And the reason why people don't get much value out of saying, God, help me to trust you, is because they have a shallow understanding of who he is. And so uh, that's something that I've been working on, and it is written for the most part, just working through it with publishing is a weird game. Um, I, uh, 
if you got to go, I thought it was, I don't know why they ring the bell. I think that was probably a student. I guess we do have five more minutes. I don't like false endings, so I feel bad now. But yeah, go ahead. It's called Dial In uh, with Johnny Artavanis. So you can find it. it on, on my Instagram, there's a link tree, which just takes you to my website, and you can find it there. It's called Dial In because I always said it when I was preaching, and then I didn't know what to name the podcast. It started during COVID. And uh, I was always like, hey, look at verse 3, dial in here. And uh, that's just kind of why I named it dial in. But I release an episode every single week. Um, and then some of that's just going through books of the Bible because um, that's my heart. But then also answering some different questions. And I try to interview people that are in the realm of their, where it's in their core competency in that specific, specific field. Yeah. Angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, I would say typically, yeah. So in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord, yeah. The angel of the Lord in Isaiah wipes out the Assyrians. Yeah, I would say that's Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Your local church. Uh, she's asking what would be right reasons to leave your local church. Um, Uh, I would just say if you're in a church that isn't teaching the Bible, that's not a church. So, like, first of all, we call ourselves church. Churches, churches have been defined by God. So a church isn't like, hey, we're gathering, we do this, which is like, I mean, every, just to let you know, and just, I never want to talk bad about my former staff at Hume, but I've hired, I don't, every year we hired 400 summer staff. And some of them would leave Hume, and they love being together, and they would start their own churches at 19-year-olds. I'm like, what you have right now is not a church. So you can stop, talk, you know, stop calling it like the gathering. You know, like it's not a church because a church has been structured and defined by God. There must be older men. There must be an elder board. There's different things like that that you have to have. And it has to teach the Bible. That's why Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. And so you have to, first of all, understand, is this a biblical church? And then uh, there would be different conversations that you could have to go, man, I love these people. I've already committed to them. I want to see this. You could say, I want to see if, if we can point this church towards the truth and and that's really tough some people i know people that have been in that battle for eight years going i love these people i have a heart for these people i don't want to abandon ship uh and then there's other people that go man i just want to be in a church that preaches the bible loves the truth and even the last two years have really changed a lot for people because i mean there's definitely different things that we could talk about but um when all churches do is try to navigate the cultural hot topics to try to draw people uh it stops becoming uh really how God designed it to operate. It just starts coming like a rotary club. And uh, I would, you have to think about it from that way. So it's really nuanced. I would always, anything I'm saying, I would just evaluate with the older godly man and woman in your life as well. Like, not because I don't agree with what I'm saying, because all I'm saying is what I think to be biblically true. What I know to be biblically true. Absolutely, 100%, I know these things to be biblically true. But I'm giving short answers, and one of the ways that you need to navigate life, and one of the ways I navigate life, is by calling the older godly people in my life that I respect and going, is there anything I'm not seeing here? And ultimately, you have to go, God, what do you want from me? And one of the things that you know is absolutely part of God's will for your life, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. You want to know God's will? I know God's will. For you, this is the will of God, your sanctification, meaning that you become more and more like Jesus Christ. And the way that you're going to become more and more like Jesus Christ is if you're in a church that preaches Jesus Christ. So when you're in a church that doesn't align with God's will for your life, then you have to seriously consider it. Um, Pat. Are you dying on me?
Yeah. Yeah, so he's asking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Was it actually saving people or was it symbolic? Well, here, here's what you need to understand. People in the New Testament are saved the exact same way that people in the Old Testament were. There's one word answer. What is it? Faith. 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 Roman. <laughs> the, uh, no. Uh, Romans 4. Romans 4 is your answer. That we're saved through faith. And what we do now is the Old Testament, they anticipated a final perfect sacrifice. We look back upon a final perfect sacrifice. And so all of those in Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, it's going to talk about the sacrificial system as symbols of what was to come. And so they were expecting someone and all of those lambs, all of those sheep that were slaughtered year after year. And we're looking at John 1 last night, right? Behold the Lamb of God. So they were awaiting something. But they were not salvific in of themselves. And it says in Romans 4 that in the past, God passed over the sins previously committed. Those sins never actually paid for any sin. It says in, Ro- in Hebrews that it is impossible for the blood of goats and rams to what? Take away sin. All of those things were in anticipation and an expectation of a real true lamb. A lamb that would totally, here's a big word, propitiate. You know what that word means? It's an important word because it's why Jesus came. It means to pay or to appease God's wrath in a way where he would be totally satisfied. And God's wrath in the Old Testament poured out on sin was temporarily, uh, it was removed. It was, it was like, it, it, he says he passed over it, meaning that it was in a way swept under the rug. It was never paid for, but at the end of the day, all sin will be paid for, and it was a substitute where they look forward to the final substitute Jesus Christ, and no more rams, no more goats are needed because of that. So they're saved by faith uh, that that system was what God had set in place until they anticipated a final coming Savior. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, about Moses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so last night, and, and I'll be done after this, and I'll pray, and then actually what I also got to do is I got to bounce. So maybe on Thursday we can set up another time, and I'll announce it in Thursday morning chapel where we can just hang out if you have any more questions because I'm going to leave after I pray to go to a dinner, and I hate kind of doing that. Uh, I don't like to be that guy, so I'm just acknowledging that. Forgive me. Um, John 5, Jesus says that the prosecuting lawyer in the day of judgment uh, will be Moses. Uh, there's two ways that you could look at it, and I believe it's a little bit of both and. Um, to the Jewish people, they had placed all of their hope in the Old Testament scriptures, and they had missed what the Old Testament scriptures were all about. And the day of judgment, what Jesus is saying is, you are gonna get to, you're gonna meet God face to face, and Moses is gonna look you in the eyes and go, how did you miss whom the entire Old Testament was pointing towards you rejected Jesus, the Son of God. I, 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 uh, I think I'll mention this on Thursday, and I don't like repeating myself, but I'm just going to give you a heads up. Um, in Isaiah 53, when it talks about the lamb, the sacrifice that would satisfy God, uh, if you read that to a Jewish man and you asked him, who is this talking about? They would think it was a Christian testimony of the death of Jesus Christ. 
He was a lamb led away like a slaughter, like a, a sheep silent before shears. He didn't open his mouth. He was crushed. He was afflicted. He bore our sins. They would think you were talking about Jesus Christ and you were quoting from the New Testament. But that was written 700 years before Jesus Christ. And it goes to show that the Old Testament points towards Jesus Christ with absolute clarity from what he's going to look like from the prophecies regarding his coming and Zechariah and Isaiah and all these different things and in the law. And so one of the things that Jesus is going to say is that you missed the forest for the trees. And I don't know if it's actually Moses pointing the finger going, you missed it. But when they get there, there's going to be a level of condemnation going, how could you miss what was right in front of you? Everything you've studied and everything you've devoted your life to points to one person. And that person came, and as we'll look at tonight, he was rejected by his people. He was totally rejected. He was slaughtered because they hated him and they couldn't handle what he came to say. And that's all I meant by John 5. It is an interesting I, in, interesting reality that Jesus declares in John 5. Um, let me just tell you this. One of the things that, uh, one of the things that's awesome is, uh, is asking questions about the Bible. You should never not have questions about the Bible. One of the things I do now is I teach through what I have questions on so I can learn to understand it. Um, and so I'm thankful for the opportunities to teach and thankful for the opportunities to study. And I'm thankful to be in a, in a place of, of ministry. But your questions that you have right now are being cultivated because you're in an environment that is proclaiming the truth, right? You come to camp, you all of a sudden have all these questions. The reason you have these questions is because you've been hearing preaching, you've been thinking, you've been talking to your friends. What do you think? What do you think? And I always just want to tell you, that should be the most fundamental routine element of your life. If you don't have this at home, you don't, you're not living the way you should be living. Obviously, it's going to look different. But there should be portions throughout your week where you're going, I'm reading this. What are you reading? What are you thinking? What are you learning? Man, I don't know. Let me get back to you. And that's exactly what Stephen Ryan did this morning. He said, hey, I just said I'd get back to it. And uh, I thought that was cool. And you should always have that with other people. Let me actually figure that out. Let's listen to a sermon. Let's go talk to our pastor. I want to navigate this with you. And that makes faith fun when you're going, I want to know this so I can love Christ more. Let me pray. I'm so thankful for your time. And uh, I got to figure out what I'm going to teach on tonight now. I'm kidding. Um, God, we love you. And we're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, who is the greatest and the best and a wonderful savior. We love you, Lord, and I'm so thankful for this time together. God, I pray that you would drive them to your word, which has everything we need pertaining to a life of godliness. Lord, so thank you, Lord, for your spirit that gives us understanding. Lord, I'm, I'm sure there's many more questions. Lord, I pray that they would uh, find themselves within good churches that teach the truth. Thank you for the solid churches that are here this week and the pastors that deeply love the people here. We commit the rest of this evening to you when we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.